Thanks for listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we take a deeper look at the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, joined, as always, by my outstanding co-host, Jeff Simmons. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing fine. Sorry if I'm distracted. I keep looking out the window for more spy balloons. You know, that's been a thing. But the question that you have to ask is, are they spy balloons or is it just the Starlink satellites or is it actual aliens? You know, that's that's something we're going to do a separate program on, of course. But yeah, um, yeah, we'll see what Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks. Oh, brother. I'm moving on. <laughs> um, you know, lots of stuff going on in the news. I always just like to throw a few tidbits out there, things that caught my eye. I have to say, past couple of days, I've been looking at this story about Mayor Eric Adams getting sort of busted, half busted, with his fine for not doing enough to control rats at his townhouse property in Brooklyn. We just did a show pretty recently on New York City versus the rats. And the rodent problem is definitely something that Mayor Adams has been talking about, not only only as mayor, but even as Brooklyn bro president. And then Jeff also was looking at uh, this story about Chick-fil-A opening up a break room for food delivery workers. That's up on 86th and 3rd on the Upper East Side. And, you know, if you think about it, you might be like, ah, it's one break room. But it's a real question. Where do workers go? Where do delivery workers go to get some rest, get out of the weather, charge their electric bikes, use a bathroom, have something to drink? And, you know, the interesting thing about this, Jeff, is that the city proposed doing this with empty stores and sides unused newsstands back in October, but this is the first one of these break hubs to actually open, which this is all sort of life's rich pageant when it comes to living and working in New York, right, Jeff? Yeah, it's, it's just amazing, you know, and it's interesting when we talk about these things and about uh, these workers, for instance, that's been in the news as well as far as there's discussions about uh, benefits and unionization and so much going on. But we, I think about this in the context of our economy and our resilience. You know, I mean, what are we going to be talking about this hour? Well, we're going to be talking about life and work in the city and how we ease out of this pandemic. And, you know, one thing I've done, Celeste, recently is I've talked to neighbors and friends who have been working remotely over the last few years during the pandemic. And I'm curious what their preference has been. Do they want to get back to the office? Do they want to stay remote? I find there's a generational thing, Celeste. I'm finding a lot of the younger folks really want to work more remote where uh, people of my age, of my generation, they're actually, <laughs> I'm finding more, yeah, my age, my generation, they actually want to go back to the office too. That could just be the people I've talked with. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's It's maybe some sort of, I don't know, you get into like a custom, you get accustomed to a way of life. Maybe work isn't just work. Maybe it's a reason to get out of the house, to socialize with other people. You have friendships, you build relationships. Maybe you go out for a coffee or a drink after work. Maybe you have dinner. Maybe you have lunch with a, a colleague or something, or you get some shopping done. Just sort of a change of scene, right, Jeff? Yeah. And what's been interesting too is, and you and I uh, have exchanged emails about this. Uh, you know, one of the developments showing where we stand in the middle of, or at this point in the pandemic is that the, uh, what is it? Notify NYC, the text messages that many of us had signed up for. Uh, well, now they won't just be, uh, well, they won't be about COVID. They're being deactivated. As far as the economic impact of this pandemic on New York goes, we're still really far from the end of the road. A new Bloomberg News analysis of data from Stanford University has some bad news for the city's bottom line, though. Manhattan office workers are spending about $12 billion with a B, $12 billion less a year uh, than they did before the pandemic. And workers are spending around a third less time physically in the office. And that means they're shelling out a lot less for food and entertainment and other things. And specifically, that comes out to about $4,700 less per person. So you might say, okay, this is happening everywhere. And to some degree, that is true. People in lots of places are staying remote or working a hybrid schedule to avoid the stress and cost of commuting if they, if they have the kind of job that gives them that choice, of course. But the bad news is that it's also costing New York more, a lot more, Per person, the analysis found that the cost of people staying away is about 50% worse in New York than anywhere else. 
So last week, we spoke with Jenna Lieber, the chairman of the MTA, about this pandemic shift and how it's affecting mass transit and how the MTA is looking at its budget, considering lower ridership thanks to remote work, not to mention trying to get a handle on violent crime in the subway system. Now, all of this is obviously something the city really needs to grapple with. And here's the question. What will happen to New York if people don't ride the trains, don't spend money, don't come back to work in person? That's what we're here to talk about today, and that brings us to our first guest. Kathy Wilde is president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. That's a nonprofit made up of business leaders and large employers. In the pandemic and post-pandemic era, the partnership has worked at the intersection of economics and public policy, and in particular is focused on getting the public and private sectors together to support small businesses and retain jobs here. Before she joined the partnership, Kathy Wilde worked on affordable housing and economic development programs, including helping minority and women-owned businesses buy and rehabilitate apartment houses formerly owned by the city. And today she's here to talk to us about where work in the city is and where it might be going. With that, Kathy Wilde, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Happy to join you. So let's start with the big picture. Research from your group has shown that people in New York are slowly but surely coming back to the office. Maybe tell us about what you found in that research. Where are we? I think the most important thing to point out is that the New York economy is bigger today than it was in 2019. So we've had net growth since the pandemic, and that's because our industries, financial services, professional services, technology, our key industries made an almost immediate shift to remote work. And the price of that is that their employees got used to the flexibility and convenience of working from home. So the economy is still growing, It's, but there's much more development, there's much more growth in the neighborhoods of the five boroughs, and there's been something of a hollowing out of the central Manhattan office districts. And after we've had for throughout the development of the service economy in Wall Street, we've had this Manhattan-centric economy. And as you mentioned, a Manhattan-centric subway system. That's what's changed. It's not that the economy is in trouble or the city is in trouble. It's that there's a lot of change. There's been a rapid switch, almost amazing transition to a digital economy, whether it's remote work or remote education or remote health care, remote shopping, across the board, New York has done really better than most cities in, in keeping up with that change. Kathy, it's great to have you on the show today. Uh, Mayor Eric Adams has made getting people back into the city a focus of his platform. And he said that people can't just be sitting around their, in their pajamas every day. But at the same time, Gothamist is now reporting that the mayor is actually looking into remote work options for city employees. What do you think of this shift? Well, I think that he's realizing what most employers started realizing when they called everybody back in June of 2020 after the pandemic lockdown and nobody came. Uh, today, we're at about 52% of employees, office workers are in the office every day in the city. But for those that are in the suburbs that have a long commute, uh, for the young people that never really adjusted to the office culture, many of them started working during the pandemic from home and don't know what it is to be in the office. One interesting thing that we are finding out through, we survey quarterly the major employers, the big office employers in the city. And what we're finding out is that businesses are as profitable as ever with remote work. Productivity is as good as ever with remote work. The losers are the employees. Professional development is what, what we're losing. And I think people are generally smart enough, particularly those that get themselves to New York City, which is still one of the top destinations for college graduates in the country, they're smart enough to figure out sooner or later that the relationships you build, the, the mentoring you get, the lessons you learn, the opportunity to shine in front of the boss, that happens in the office, not over Zoom. 
This is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're talking to Kathy Wild, who's the president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City, about post-pandemic future of work. And Kathy, you know, I saw in your report that there's some discussion of how businesses are trying to encourage people to get back in the office, and they're not just uh, necessarily blanket ordering people to come back, they're offering perks, incentives. What kinds of things are you seeing businesses doing to encourage people to get back into a physical office space? Well, it's everything from free food and transportation to uh, team meetings, uh, team building, social hours, and, uh, and focusing on what they're calling purposeful activity, that you're not just coming back to the office to sit and look at your computer you're coming back for a reason. They've also, there's been a tremendous move by businesses during the pandemic into new office space that makes people, that is much more attractive than your studio apartment in Brooklyn, you know. So they're doing everything they can to encourage people to come back, and we're beginning to see it work. But it's not going to be the same, particularly because it's not going to be Everybody comes to the office every day. Right now, there's about 9% of the whole of the office workers in Manhattan pre-pandemic had about 1.3 million office workers. About 9% of them are in the office every day. That's it. It's a big change. And 82% of employers are saying they're going to have some form of hybrid work where people don't come in every day. They're allowed to, to be, maybe they're in the office three days a week, otherwise not. Before the pandemic, it was only 6% of employers that allowed people not to have a five-day-a-week schedule. So this is a big shift. Uh, employers, frankly, have been drawn kicking and screaming, like the mayor, into recognizing that it's a new day and technology has allowed us to have a different kind of economy that you can perform your job from any place in the world. And... Going back to the survey for one more quick question, talking about encouraging people to come back in. And your survey found uh, the stats I looked at, 24% of people said they had negative feelings about coming back because public transit was unsafe or unreliable. Do you think the MTA is doing enough to address this right now? The MTA is making an enormous effort, and I just want to make a slight correction that the survey you're referencing was taken in September of this mm-hmm. year, of last mm-hmm. year. We just finished a new survey in January of this year. That number has dropped from 24% who blame public transit for not coming back to work. It's now only 6%. So wow. that's become a much smaller number. The, uh, the governor and the mayor have put a lot of police in the subways because one of the big traumas was we had a couple of very serious incidents more than a few, where people were shoved in front of the subway, uh, you know, they and got very nervous. And they, during the pandemic, a lot of anxiety built up. We lost 45,000 New York City residents were killed by the COVID-19. This, is, this has a big impact on our city and on every family, every household in our city. And there's a hangover there where our crime rates are nothing like they were 30 years ago when, uh, but, but people's sensibilities are just much raw, more raw than they were then. Um, we were going to tough it out. Today people are feeling under siege. And I think that's, um, that's, that's the problem that the subways are having to deal with. I mean, we've got, again, crime, homelessness, we're not nearly in the shape that some of our other other cities are around the country, but there's still big issues for us, and increasingly, we've got an affordability problem. The rents are higher than they've ever been. Went down for a couple months at the beginning of the pandemic that you could get a bargain in New York City for about six months in 2020. They're way higher than they've ever been now. The average rent in Manhattan is $5,000 a month, and that's not for a big apartment. So we've got a lot of issues that we're facing, 
But we're very confident that the value of the city that's bringing people here, we're the only international, truly international city in the country. We've got the biggest concentration of top talent in the city from multiple industries. So we're very encouraged that the city is is going to adjust to the digital age, to remote work, and to all the other factors. It will take some time, but we're, we're going to see, you know, after 9-11, lower Manhattan, within five years, became the fastest-growing neighborhood in America. That was the business, central business district. There was very little residential population before that, before 9-11. Afterwards, that just that multiplied. Same thing is going to happen in midtown Manhattan. We're going to see neighborhoods emerge, and that's a good thing for our city. It'll make the, it'll create a 24-7 environment that's very positive. And in the meantime, across the five boroughs and in the suburbs surrounding the city in New York and New Jersey, mm-hmm. the local business districts are thriving because folks are going out for coffee or lunch. They're eating, you know, it's not that the money's not being spent, that number of of $12 billion being lost to Manhattan Central Business Districts, that's not being lost to the city and the region. It's being spent. It's just being spent in a different spot. And, you know, Kathy, I want to jump in here when we're talking about how, you know, the city adapts, how businesses adapt, how we all adapt during the pandemic. And as we emerge from the pandemic, I'm really interested in the type of solutions that will be able to even repurpose space that might have been filled with, you know, larger businesses. And I'm curious what you think about the discussions of remaking office space as housing and what kind should it be? Well, Absolutely. I think that I lived through the 70s and 80s when the old manufacturing economy disappeared and many places in the city that are some of our most valuable neighborhoods emerged from that with the loft factory buildings being turned into loft buildings. And the same thing has been happening along our waterfront where a long abandoned waterfront suddenly became the most desirable housing spaces. So we've got... um, Kathy, we're still with you? We still with you? Okay, we may. I believe Kathy's actually traveling, so we are going to try to get her back in just a moment, unless you're still out there somewhere along the line. But okay, we're going to try to get Kathy back in just a moment here. In the meantime, though, I think that's a good question, Jeff, right? I mean, is I think that personally, I think that reports of the death of New York City are greatly exaggerated. But at the same time, you know, maybe we're going to be looking at a different kind of city. Maybe, uh, you know, midtown Manhattan no longer is the epicenter of the universe if if it still was at the onset of the pandemic, Jeff, right? Maybe it wasn't. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see, I mean, she pointed this out. You see certain areas, certain neighborhoods within the city's five boroughs that are increasing substantially with residential stock, with businesses as well. You know, I also think of, you know, as much as you gave those statistics or we gave them in the very beginning about spending and the drop in spending, Mm -hmm. you know, in Manhattan, uh, I think of how when we're working remotely, we are patronizing more of the businesses locally here. So it's being fueled into like in my economy here in Jackson Heights. I'm supporting my, all my local businesses here. Right. Whereas if I were going into the office, I might have been doing it in that neighborhood. Yeah, and, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, too, with, with our next guest. But I think we have Kathy Wild back on the line. Kathy, back with us. I am indeed, and I'm in Bay Ridge. I, my home is in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And again, stopping in my local neighborhood, the economy of the city is a five-borough economy, and of the region, it includes the surrounding suburbs, even New Jersey, our sixth borough. So we're uh, we're in much better shape than people realize. And maybe the question we were just talking about a second ago is the one we should pose to you. Looking ahead, if this is true, that maybe there isn't going to be this uh, this density of office worker population in Midtown or in the financial district, whatever it may be, you know, are we going to be looking at a fundamentally different Manhattan or a fundamentally different New York City? Is it going to be five years from now sort of, you know, unrecognizable to us, but not necessarily in a bad way? I think that it is going to change. You're going to see much more diverse economic activity around the five boroughs, that uh, jobs will be 
moving to all parts of the city and the region. And you'll see the transportation system will have to adjust, but people will still be coming to the Manhattan for this is where our big educational institutions are. It's NYU, it's Columbia, it's Cooper Union, it's our big museums, the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum, the Whitney, etc. So the cultural activities and the entertainment activities are going to grow. Some say we're going to get casinos, and I'm not sure that that's the best answer, but um, but we'll, we will see change, and we'll see a lot more residential activity, both conversion of old office buildings and new construction. I think we'll see a real investment in our parks and recreation spaces that people got very attached to during the pandemic. Um, so I think we're going to see positive changes in Manhattan and across the city. And again, I'll just reference after 9-11, what we saw, a metamorphosis in lower Manhattan, where it, where a third of the people that work in lower Manhattan, which is the nation's fourth largest business district, they walk to work. A third of the people that work there walk to work. So that was a big change that we made. And we're going to see the same kind of change taking place in Midtown. And Kathy, we're going to have to wrap up in about one minute. I just want to go back to something that I've kind of discussed at the beginning of the show, because we've had these discussions in my office with our younger employees. And I find there's a generational thing. And and you touched on this as well about, you know, younger employees who might not have worked in an office environment have not gotten that experience. So many of them just even out of college just know what the last two years were like when they were working remotely. How do you convince them? How would you convince them that, you know, that you need this experience, you need to be in an office setting, you're going to learn a lot more. I mean, I'm kind of, I think I'm preaching to the choir here, but this is a really important point that maybe parents or guardians who are listening can also advise their kids. You can't always work remote. You've got to learn what it's like and to and get that experience. How would you sell that to like our younger listeners right now who might be like, I just want to work remote for the rest of my life? I think you have to sell it by showing them that's what employers are trying to do. What can they provide in the office that gives people a real motive to come to get to work, to get to know their colleagues, to spend quality time with their supervisors, to uh, experience some social life as well as uh, just, you know, having their nose to the grindstone in the computer. So hopefully we're going to see that young people, and, and we are seeing it. We're seeing more young people come back. All the employers are telling me they're seeing more, uh, more of the young people recognize that there are opportunities in the office they're not going to get at home. Developing client relationships, for example, is another important thing. So we're gradually going to see people come back. I think we can write off Fridays forever. But otherwise, in terms of the work week and in terms of office culture, it's not going away. Before I let you go, let our listeners know where they should go if they want to learn more about the Partnership for New York City and find some of this information we've been talking about. Just go to Partnership for New York City, our website, and you can get all the information on what we're doing and all the programs that we're involved with and how employers are really pitching in to make sure the city recovers, that we have lots of opportunities for young people. We've got a great job market. We've got um, our economy is only is is one percent higher than it was in 2019. We're at four million private sector jobs now, which is just one percent below where we were in 2019. New York is coming back strong from a very bad experience at the beginning of the pandemic. Kathy Weil, thank you so much for joining us here on WBAI today. Thank you. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. A very quick reminder as we take on these important issues today. If you care about New York, if it means something to you to have a radio station that talks about how to make this city a better place, please take a moment today. Go to WBAI.org and lend your support. This is non-commercial, listener-supported WBAI. 
Please support the Tower Fund. It only takes a minute to support free speech, independent radio. Your gift is tax deductible. Go to WBAI.org right now and give as much as you can. It costs us $17,000 a month just to pay the rent on our broadcast tower at four times square. Big business doesn't power WBAI. We depend on your help. That's WBAI.org and thanks. So if you just tuned in this hour, Celeste Katz-Marston and myself, we've been talking about the post-pandemic future of work and life in New York. And a few moments ago, you just heard from Kathy Wild, president of the Partnership for New York City. Now we're going to shift gears just a little bit. Henry Grabar writes the Metropolis column for Slate, where he covers housing, transportation, and the environment. And his work has also appeared in outlets including The Atlantic, The Guardian, and The Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, which I can't wait to read now, Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World, which Penguin is going to release this May. Henry, welcome here to WBAI's Driving Forces. Thanks for having me. So we asked you to join us today because of a piece that you had written not too long ago for Slate, and the headline was a little provocative. It said, cities are for people who want to be there. So for people who have not had a chance to read this story yet, what's your argument in the piece? Sure. I think that for a long time, uh, many American cities have been coasting on the fact um, that they have these offices on which workers absolutely are obliged to go to. Um, day in, day out. And since 2020, obviously, as you've been discussing, that has no longer been the case. And I think that um, there was a period where we were uh, coasting on federal aid and we were unsure about what the future was going to look like. But, but now that cities are recognizing that um, remote work is here to stay, I think it's time for them to think again about what they offer people. Um, and, and I guess like when I talk about people who want to be there, what I'm trying to say is that office workers, to some extent, came because they had to. And if they don't have to come anymore, then how do you make a city into some place that people want to be so that it retains that sort of um, vitality and verve uh, 24-7, even if you don't have um, tens of thousands or, in New York's case, millions of people commuting in to go to work? So, Henry, and thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time and enjoyed your piece a lot. I want to sort of uh, flip this a little bit. You know, we're looking at people who want to be here. And I'm very excited about that. And a lot of us really love New York. We're born here, lived, you know, lived in New York for a long time. And there are some people that have been able, for various reasons, been able to opt out and say, you know, I don't want to be here. I have the money. I'm going to go move to the island or whatever it is. I don't want to be here anymore. There are some people who don't have that option nor do they have the option of commuting, you know, re- working remotely and so on. So what are some of the ideas that you've talked about in your piece or that you've been thinking about, about ways to make New York more vibrant and more livable for people who, quote unquote, do have to be here? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. I mean, for decades, the city's politics have been oriented towards a pleasing um, large commercial office holders in, in Midtown. And, you know, if you look at, like, for example, if you look at our newest um, mega project in New York, Eastside Access, that to me is a great example, right? Like uh, almost $12 billion spent digging out this cavern under Grand Central Terminal to make it easier for suburbanites to come and work in Midtown. Like, what does that do for people who are dependent on the under-resourced bus network in the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn? So I think... You know, one of the easiest and most obvious things that the city could do um, for, for, for New Yorkers who have been here their whole lives and, and have stuck with the city is to improve the bus network. I mean, that is just the workhorse of the transit system. And it seems like the city is incapable of, of even um, clearing out corridors so that buses can move unobstructed by, by double parked cars and, and traffic jams. So, so that, you know, that's, that's, that would be a starting place. You're listening to WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston, here with Jeff Simmons, and we're talking to Harry Grabar of Slate, who writes about urban policy. And our topic today is post-pandemic life and work. And 
Uh, in your piece, Henry, you know, it was really interesting to me that you said, look, there are a lot of things that we can do to make New York a place that people want to be. The problem is a lot of those things are going to be political non-starters. And, you know, maybe talk to us about some of those things that you think could really uh, make New York a better place, but probably not going to happen, at least not now. Well, I mean, I, I think the, you know, uh, obviously, like building out, expanding the subway network would be huge, right? I mean, I think I've always been an I've always been an optimist, um, even in the worst days of the pandemic, about New York's future. And one reason is because I, I really love New York. Um, <laughs> I am one of those people who would like to be there, and um, I, I think that when we talk about um, ways to um, when we talk about remote work and and the way that it has enabled some people to leave New York. Um, uh, that's true, uh, but the flip side of that is that there's uh, hundreds of millions of people in this country, right? And uh, how many of them have potentially always wanted to move to New York and have never been able to because of restrictions on, tied to their jobs or to their partner's jobs? Um, and so I think New York should see this as an opportunity, right? And instead of um, trying to uh, bring in, um, you know, the next uh, corporate office tenant, they should try and think about how to, how to bring in um, people who, who would want to be here um, in terms of the, the, the ways that they could improve quality of life in the city. When, if we're talking about like pie in the sky goals, I mean, fully funding and expanding the MTA is a big one. Um, significantly lowering the cost of housing so that it's not two, three, four times more expensive than living in another American city. Um, solving the homelessness crisis. I would put three of those at really at the top of the list um, for things that need to happen, but that I'm not super optimistic about them happening in the short term. You know, what's so interesting is when I had read the piece, you had this great line that I loved, make the city work for them and it will work for everyone. When it talks about, you talk about equity, how city cities basically need to address their economic models to account for changing times. And I'm curious as we move ahead, what are some of the things that maybe you're seeing in other cities that have worked that New York city should consider? Sure. I, I mean, I think one of the, one of the biggest ones is is probably um, thinking about new uses of public space. Um, new York, in some ways, uh, the city of New York itself is the uh, largest real estate developer in New York because it controls all the streets, which make up something like a quarter of of all the square, you know, all the land in, in New York City, right? And I think we saw during the pandemic a glimpse of how the city might approach the management, uh, the management of its streets a little bit differently in terms of the restaurants having their seating outside and all of that. But that, to me, is really only just touching the surface of what might be possible. And I think if you look to other cities, you see examples of this. Um, uh, you know, even Los Angeles, for example, which is nobody's idea of a pedestrian-friendly metropolis, has something called Ciclovia, where they close miles and miles of streets, and it becomes this, like, big civic thing where everybody comes out and enjoys themselves. And uh, New York's really, especially when you consider the number of people who, who walk and bike on a daily basis here, um, is, is quite be behind it in that respect. Um, so that would be one place. I mean, another one is on, on housing policy. I think New York is way behind some of the high-cost West Coast states in terms of the types of housing dwellings it's trying to encourage, right? Like these cities uh, like L.A. and San Francisco in California – State has recognized that the housing crisis is a serious impediment to quality of life and a reason that people are leaving. That's also true in New York. But if you look at what's happening on the West Coast, they're coming up with all these innovative ways to allow people to build more housing units, especially the types of housing units that cater to people who've been left out of the market, you know, like um, uh, families, older people, single people, um, et cetera. And, and that's, that's just a place where New York really has done nothing. So. Um, those are places where I think the city can make a lot of progress. And Henry, in your piece, you brought up a point that I thought was super interesting, just in terms of how we're even asking the questions that we're asking today. And, you know, I think a lot of times when people have been talking about post-pandemic life and post-pandemic work in New York City, they always talk about getting New York back to where it was. I think maybe people have sort of a distorted view. Maybe I have a distorted view of what that even means. It's like, oh, we're going to go back to the way it was. But, you know, you're talking about in your piece, like in terms of manufacturing jobs and things like that. 
New York hasn't had that for a long time. Are we sort of looking at this through a through a, a blurry lens of what it even means to go back to the way things were? Gosh, it's it's such a hard question because I think you know the change that happened over the last three years happened so abruptly. You know, I mean, we talk about the deindustrialization that happened in New York in the '60s. I, I'm sure it felt abrupt then, but if you look at the job loss, it happened over a period of 25 or 30 years. Um, so potentially there was an easing into that. Uh, whereas we have within, you know, it, it such easy recall for, for what it was like in 2019 uh, when, you know, the MTA was hitting record numbers of subway riders and, um, and, and, you know, Midtown was, was absolutely jammed to the brim every day. Uh, in terms of what happens next, I think it's very hard to predict. Um, so I wouldn't want to make decisions and say, here's what New York is going to be like in 10 years. But I think the important thing that New York has going for it, and this is not the case for every city whose downtown has been emptied out by remote work, is that people really, really want to live in New York. <laughs> like the real estate prices demonstrate that. Like we, you know, people leave New York because they get priced out. Like that is, that is the main thing um, that, 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 that sends people out of New York. So uh, I think, you know, Obviously, if you're trying to think about what the future looks like, um, I think it's clear, and, and, and Kathy re, you know, referred to this, that you have to make it easier for people to live in the city, um, and that means um, making it easier to build housing. Uh, I'm not super confident that there's that much um, down – There's not. I'm, I'm not confident there's that much office space left to be converted um, in the same way there was in lower Manhattan after 9-11, where you saw all these early 20th century buildings – turn into residential units. Um, it takes a certain type of office tower to be um, a good candidate for that. Um, that said, uh, there is plenty the city could do to encourage more housing construction. And I think that, you know, that seems like a, a no-brainer. We're thinking about what the city of the future looks like. Um, I hope it looks like one where um, there's more New Yorkers living here. And that would also take advantage of the fact that the transit system is, is currently uh, a little under capacity if you compare it to before the pandemic. You know, and it's interesting. I know we only have a few minutes left. Uh, and, um, as you're speaking about this, I, I also just say, wanted to talk to you about the, uh, the book that you have coming out later this spring, because parking is another issue that frustrates so many New Yorkers. I can't find a parking space. I can't afford to park in a garage. You have a book coming out, Paved Paradise. And it made me also wonder in the context of what we're speaking about today, is this another thing that, you know, that New York City should be looking at, too? Because, you know, I know we're talking about congestion pricing, uh, you know, but so many people I know during the pandemic were not taking mass transit. And if they had to go to work, they had to drive in and were being frustrated by the uh, by the uh, the cost of having to be able to park. But talk a little about what, you know. I want to tease your book also because I want to have you back on this show later on this spring to talk about the book, but talk a little about that challenge and, 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 and a little about the book and what we can expect to see in it. Sure. Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I, I love to talk parking any day and uh, talk strategy, uh, how to find a good spot. Um, good for two days, you know, avoid street cleaning and all of that. I think parking is, it's this really wonderful civic ritual in New York where because the, uh, various holidays on which alternate side is suspended um, get announced on the radio every morning. We have a kind of um, shared appreciation for the various rituals and holidays that define all the ethnic groups in the city. You know, everyone's aware of the sort of, um, you know, obscure holidays that you might not have known just because you get a pass of moving your car. Um, so I'll appreciate that. But, you know, on a more fundamental level, I think the, the problem in New York is that the city is geometrically constrained, right? Like there are, a lot of people here and there's not a lot of space on the curb and <laughs> there's there's really no way around that you know what i mean like if if everybody wants to buy a car um there's just not going to be enough room for people to park them I, I would say you know to the extent the problem with parking is that the more parking you make and the easier you make it to park the cheaper you make it to park the more people drive so to ask, like, how can we create enough parking in New York City, I think is asking the wrong question. It's like asking uh, how much beer is in the fridge at a college party. You know, it's just like the, the supply dictates the demand. And uh, so if you're thinking about strategies to make it easier to park, uh, the question you have to ask yourself is, 
how can we discourage people um, from owning cars? So the people who really need to drive and need to park will have an easier time doing that. And I think the city does a pretty poor job of that. Um, I think a lot of New Yorkers I know have a car that they use like once or twice a month. And sometimes they don't even use it because they're afraid it's going to be hard to park it afterwards. Um, so those are the people we should be really trying to get them to essentially give up their cars or at least put their car in a garage so that that valuable and convenient street space can be used by somebody who needs their car every day. Well, Henry Guevara, we're going to take you up on your offer to come back on the program when Pave Paradise comes out and talk about this, because I think people will love that show and Jeff will be your best friend forever. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, if people want to find out more about you and your work, where can we send them? Uh, well, you can uh, check me out on Twitter. I'm at Henry Guevara. I write for Slate. And, and obviously, uh, you can um, uh, go to my website, henryguevara.com, and, and find out more information about the book. Perfect. Henry Gruber, thank you so much for joining us here today on Driving Forces. My pleasure. Take care, guys. We're going to take a very short break right now, which makes it a great time to go to WBAI.org and make your pledge. After the break, we'll be right back here for your calls. 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. How often do you have to go into work and how often do you want to go into work? Are reports of New York's death greatly exaggerated? Has the city changed for you? Do you think New York will ever be, quote unquote, the same after this pandemic? Pandemic. If not, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Phone lines are open 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Don't go away. And don't forget, you are listening to WBAI. Welcome back to Driving Forces on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. That was Simple Minds. It's taken me back, Celeste, really taken me back to the breakfast club there in that final scene as I raise my hand. I'm Jeff Simmons. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston. Thank you so much. If you use that uh, two or so minutes to be able to, to donate, thank you so much for taking advantage of that time and donating at WBAI.org and supporting the Tower Fund or our BAI Buddy program. Now, if you are uh, listening and you do want to call in because you want to weigh in on why you left New York or why you'll never leave New York or what it will take to get people to stay in New York, please give us a call. That number to call is 212-209-2877. Once again, the number to call, 212-209-2877. 
We'd really like to hear from you today on this because there's sort of two different approaches that we took. One was essentially a business approach with our first guest. What is it going to take to get people back into Midtown, into offices, you know, working uh, in the the middle of the city and patronizing the shops and the restaurants and so on, riding the trains. But then there's a different view of New York. Maybe we don't need that super dense sort of traditional Midtown model or what has been traditional for a while with all these financial services and businesses and so on. Maybe people could live and work in the city in a very different way. Interested to hear what you think New York City should look like a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. You know, and I wonder, Celeste, um, if, you know, a key reason why people are leaving is because, you know, during the pandemic, they wanted more space because we're so crowded here in New York City. If that was one of the reasons, it could have been about crime. I know we've talked about transportation with our guests and, and about housing, but I'm really, you know, that's where these polls that we see about, you know, from Quinnipiac and, and, uh, Siena, you know, they ask these questions, you know, to kind of gauge what's on people's minds. And, uh, you know, I'm really curious. And if you're listening, why, if you've left New York, why were you leaving New York? Or if you're staying in New York, what keeps you here? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it your business? What's appealing to you about living in New York City? And also, what changes do you think you, you know, New York City could make to attract more people, more businesses here to get people back to work in Manhattan or some of these other neighborhoods that are, are that are seeing more business now. Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about this, 212-209-2877 is the number to call. 212-209-2877. Tried to get at this in some of the interviews, but we're talking a lot here, or people are talking about bringing New York City back, quote unquote. How do we get people to come back if they're working remote? You know, a lot of people, and I think a lot of people who are listening to this program that's not an option. Maybe you can't work from your living room. Maybe you can't work from your porch in Wyoming or wherever people go, wherever people relocate. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. We're going to go to the phones right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello. Hi. Yeah, I'm calling from Brooklyn. Uh, my wife works from home. I would I would like to know, like, if somebody works from home, uh, can they get a tax deduction for home, having like a home office? Uh, you know, and uh, instead of going through this in incorporating and all of that, if you work from home and you're using your space and your phones to to facilitate a business, can you write it off on your taxes some type of way? You know, I'm jumping in here. It's interesting that you raise this question because I just finished my taxes and uh, I'm someone who I have an office that I could go to. Uh, but often I worked over the last two years, a little over two, uh, from home most of this time. And, and she advised that because your office was available and I'm not giving, I'm not telling anyone to follow this example. This was just my case because my office was available that I could go in, that I couldn't write any of this off. But if, uh, but she had said if the office had officially closed down and you had to do all your work out of your house, it might be a different scenario. It's the type of thing if you're listening and that's a question you have, definitely talk to your accountant about that and find out what his or her advice is. We're going to go. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, one more. You have one more. One more thought to add before we go to our next caller. No, that's good. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for calling. Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven is the number to call. Two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. This is Driving Forces on WBAI, and we are talking about the future of work and life in New York City. We're going to go to our next caller. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Hi, Joan. Excuse me, Joan from Manhattan. Um, this conversation tends to be a little Manhattan centric, doesn't it? I mean, people working from home, unless they're working from, I think you're working from Boston, Celeste. I don't know. Um, I'm here in ja- working, I'm here in Jackson Heights. Right, right. Well, so most people working from home are working from Queens or Brooklyn or Bronx or Staten Island. Um, you know, the so-called outer boroughs, chauvinistically referred to by Manhattanites as the outer boroughs, <laughs> right? I, uh, I'm interrupting you because, 
I was advised when I was on New York One, you never say outer boroughs. You say boroughs outside right, of Manhattan. Right, right. So there, there's the city, which is Manhattan, and there are the boroughs, which is everything else. But um, I, I, maybe they answered this question, but people working in Brooklyn and Queens and all that, aren't they supporting the businesses there? Isn't that good for, I mean, we're talking about the, the money that's lost by the restaurants and places in Manhattan, but what about the restaurants and coffee shops and bodegas in Brooklyn that are getting lots of business because people are calling up and having their lunch delivered because they're working from home in Brooklyn? Do we have statistics on that? Yeah, what we have seen in some of the research, and thank you, John, for your call, is that we are seeing local business centers or business districts uh, are vibrant, are making money, uh, you know, because they are just, as you say, because they are serving people in these local areas, people who are now working at home in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, wherever it may be. So the issue is um, what, what a lot of people have focused on, and we have been trying in this program not to make it our entire focus, but, you know, I think for a long time, Manhattan was very much seen as sort of the economic engine of the city. That's where people were coming in from other places outside the city to spend their money, to rent major, major amounts of office spaces in in high rises and so on uh, for tourism and so on. Obviously, those things have been affected by the pandemic. Now, the question going forward is going to be whether people are going to return uh, in the same numbers and to the same locations that's important, the same numbers and the same locations uh, that they were occupying or using in the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, some people have left. Since you bring it up, I have been uh, out of the state for a little bit, uh, thanks to some family matters that I'm taking care of. But I am still a New Yorker. I still pay taxes in New York and so on. So, you know, the question is going to be, again, where is the city going to be uh, in a few years from now? I believe we have time for one more call, 212 209 877 is the number to call 212-209-2877. And uh, if you want to, if you want to get in on this, then we can, uh, we can actually, we're going to, we're going to save it now because I, I do think that we have to uh, get to some promotions for uh, future stuff. And I know Jeff, you want to mention really quick about the book, about the Rikers book. This is really yes, important I guys. Listen up. And I do, I do, because I know we got to close the show. Uh, we've talked about this on other shows too, but I really want to bring it up again because it is a gift we have for our listeners. If you donate $50 or more, we had the authors on a few weeks ago, uh, Graham Raymond and Ruvain Blau, who wrote a book, Rikers and Oral History. We get a lot of calls whenever we focus on Rikers and criminal justice issues. This is the perfect type of book that our listeners should dive into. It's really a disturbing book, I have to admit, because you're hearing all of these stories from the people who have been incarcerated, from people who were in management positions there, previously worked in correction. You got it. You want this book. So you donate $50 to or more to WBAI and you can get this as a gift. You've got to identify it because we only got a few copies from the publisher. So go to WBAI.org. You can support the station. You can get a book, Rikers and Oral History. Thanks to our special guests today, Kathy Wilde of the Partnership for New York City and Harry, uh, Henry Grabara of Slate. Thanks to our engineer, Reggie Johnson. Thanks to you, our listeners and callers. And the biggest thanks of all, everyone who is taking a moment today to go to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy in the name of this show or to support the Tower Fund. If you missed any part of today's program, you can hear it unfold by subscribing to Driving Forces via Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with Celeste Katz-Marston and Jeff Simmons. Now stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. See you on the radio.